Please join me by turning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we are studying verses 12 to 17. And our message will be titled, Overwhelmed by the Overflow. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer and ask for his help to understand his word. Lord, thank you so much for your word. God, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that I love to do is listen to salvation stories from people both near and far. Salvation stories fill me with fresh faith and thankfulness to the God that stopped me on my hell-bound path and turned me towards him in faith. And one such story, which I believe I will never forget, is that of an Australian Christian named George Palmer. The title of George His testimony on YouTube online is Former Gangster Plots to Kill Billy Graham. Well, now well into his 70s, George retells his testimony, which took place in 1959 at a Billy Graham crusade. But the events leading up to his testimony were that his father died when he was seven years old, and this broke his heart. He says in his story that he became so angry with the Lord that he told him, I hate you and I will never love you. Well, as George was growing up, he became the leader of a violent gang near near Melbourne, Australia. And when this gang discovered that Billy Graham was coming to their town to preach the gospel, they hated the news, so they plotted to kill him. Ten young men armed themselves with zip guns hidden under their trench coats, and entered the stadium where the crusade was being held. And their plan was to wait until the time of the appeal, the invitation to come up front for prayer or for placing faith in Christ. And this was going to allow them to get close enough 
to Dr. Graham to take the shot and to kill him. However, their plans would be, would be foiled as nine out of ten of these young men became overwhelmed by the overflow of God's love and mercy in Christ. The time for the appeal came and George found himself confronted with his sin and yet at the same time comforted by God's grace in Christ. He recalls that he laid his gun down on the field right where he was standing at the time of the appeal. He repented of his sins and he placed his faith in Jesus alone for his salvation. Friends, the magnitude of someone's sins does not determine the mercy available to them in Christ. George Palmer went from being a gang member to an officer in the Salvation Army where he would serve for the next 30 years until his retirement, saying at one point in his testimony, God took this person who hated him with every part of his being, yet God took him and he loved him. It's amazing how God can take a situation like that and he can change your life completely. George concludes by saying, I thank him every day for that. And what's amazing is that over 60 years after Christ changed George's life, He is still amazed by grace. He is still passionate about the gospel and its transforming power in his life. Now, what about you, friend? Are you still amazed at grace? Are you still enamored by grace? The gospel, the message of salvation that came and found you in your sin and saved you from your hell-bound path. Is the gospel still the main thing in your life? Well, no matter where you're at on that scale this morning, here's the good news. The Lord wants to remind us through his word how to keep the gospel the main thing in our lives through this text this morning. And the main point from this text this morning, I believe, is this. Our past should serve to ignite our passion for God's saving work in the present. Our past should serve to ignite our passion for God's saving work in the present. So here we have in our text the Apostle Paul writing over 25 years after his own conversion to Christ. And yet, I think you would agree with me, he is more overwhelmed by the overflow of God's grace towards him now than ever before in his life. And as he's writing this text, he becomes overwhelmed with emotions, it appears. He never forgets who he was before Christ, but instead he uses his past to ignite his passion for the gospel in the present. 
So friend, if you've ever wondered or if you are currently wondering, even as I'm speaking, how can I be passionate about the gospel like George Palmer or like the Apostle Paul or like John Piper? How can I be passionate about the gospel? Can I be passionate about the gospel? Well, the answer to that question is going to be found throughout studying our text this morning. And here's the point. Passion for Christ is not a gift reserved for a few. But it is a life that is to be lived by each and every Christian. So to help reorient us this morning, Paul has two emotional appeals in our text for us today. And these two appeals serve as our two points. First is overflow, and then second is overwhelmed. So the first, overflow, verses 12 to 14. Now before we can be a people overwhelmed by the gospel, overwhelmed, losing our breath, heart, fluttering at the thought that Christ would save us from our sins, we first have to be a people aware of the overflow of God's grace available to us in the gospel. Friends, if we are always considering ourselves lacking God's grace, when we evaluate our lives and we we come to the conclusion that we are lacking God's grace, then we will be found panting near edges of dry streams. But if we, like Paul, even like George Palmer, consider ourselves supplied with more than we deserve then we will be found swimming in the overflow of God's grace towards us in Christ. Friend, are you someone who is aware of the overflow of God's grace in the gospel? Does your life spill out, overflow, with thankfulness for what he has done for you in Christ. Paul says in verse 12, I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength. Paul can't help himself from bursting out in thankfulness to Christ who has given him strength. And this this is an obvious statement signifying a past reality. Namely, the strength which God has given to him in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his life. And this strength, lest we be mistaken, did not come to a worthy man. If you don't know anything about the apostle Paul, he was much like George Palmer. He was a murderer. He was someone who wanted to take people out. Listen, this grace that came to Paul did not come to a worthy man. It came to someone who calls himself the chief of sinners. Listen, Paul knows himself to have been a a terrible sinner. 
That's why we have this phrase. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful or trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And whatever Paul means by this, by this statement, because he judged me trustworthy, it's not because he was trustworthy that God's eyes are searching. He's, oh, there's Paul the murderer. He's trustworthy. He's literally the opposite of that. God's eyes are not searching in Melbourne, Australia, 1959, to see George Palmer as a trustworthy man whose dad died when he was young. He says, I hate you, Lord. Oh, that guy's trustworthy. No, listen, it is understood by the next. If you're ever, if you ever wondering, what does this text of Scripture mean in God's word? What does it mean? Judge me faithful, trustworthy, receive the gospel because I'm faithful? Well, hold on a minute. There's a comma there. Let's just keep reading. Appointing me to his service. Therefore, what that means is that is to, to be understood. This because he judged me faithful is to be understood by the second part of that sentence, appointing me to his service. Donald Guthrie, this commentator, says this. This expression means that Paul is deeply impressed, and that's what I want for us today, deeply impressed with the fact that he had in no way appointed himself. Okay? Let's see if Scripture agrees with that conclusion. We always want Scripture to agree with conclusions, correct? 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6, the same Paul who wrote 1 Timothy, writing 1 Corinthians. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient. To be ministers of a new covenant. Amen. So Christ judged Paul as trustworthy because he made Paul to be trustworthy. And, and the apostle, he knows this. And he is so thankful for that reality. He knows that before the Damascus road, before his conversion, he was anything but trustworthy. When he read God's word and he was a student of God's word, he misunderstood God's word. He was anything but trustworthy. But instead, this is what he says of himself in verse 13. He calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Here's the point, friends. Part of Paul's happiness. I think we could conclude we haven't met Paul face to face. But when you read him here, you think, man, this guy was happy. Part of his happiness in Christ was due to the fact that he knew who he was before Christ saved him. Some 25 years later after his own conversion, he hasn't softened his own view of the kind of person that he was before Christ. So friends, as you consider your own salvation story this morning, has time proved to soften your own opinion of yourself, of who you were before Christ found you. Perhaps when Christ saved you, you knew yourself to be quite the sinner, but, but time has passed and you've allowed your heart to soften and now you've come to slip into the conclusion that 
you know, I've met a lot of bad people since then. And maybe after all, I wasn't that bad. Maybe I was kind of bad. Maybe I was semi-bad, but I see bad guys on the news. I see bad guys getting caught in things, and I'm not one of those guys. Well, friends, let me tell you something. There is no quicker way to quench your passion for the gospel than to soften your view of who you actually were before Christ saved you. There is no quicker way to quench your passion for Christ than to soften your perspective of who you were before Christ saved you. Jesus says this in Luke 7, 47. I love this text. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. Friends, regardless of whether we were Princeton or prison bound, the chasm that separated us from God was the same distance. Every Christian is in the category of forgiven much. Whether you were homeschooled, private schooled, public schooled, whether you came to faith in Christ at such a young age that you cannot recall it, or whether you came to faith in Christ in prison. The chasm that separates us from God is the same distance for all of us. The question this morning is this. Are you aware of just how much you have been forgiven? Now, friends, this is an important detail. I am not advocating that we review our past to relive guilt, but to revel in the gospel alone. Here's who I was before Christ. I was selfish. I made an idol of my career. I worshipped my passions and desires. And I had absolutely no time for God. That's who I was. Who were you? Use biblical theological categories to classify who you were before Christ. As you do it, as you say, I was self-centered. I was an idolater. And listen, I don't want, I don't want you to say that Passively. No, idolaters in the Old Testament are worthy of death. That's what I'm saying of myself. I was an idolater. Listen, I worshiped. What a dummy. I worshiped not the living God who created the heavens and the earth like we were singing. I worshiped my, my desires. I had no time for God. Remembering that ignites my passion for God in the present. Because it causes me to revel in, you saved me when I was there. 
Friends, Paul never forgot who he was. He says in verse 13, he says, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, this is another interesting sentence, another interesting phrase in the middle of this text. Why is this an important distinction for Paul to make? Well, here's the answer. It is because he does not want to lighten the blow of the sins which the false teachers were guilty of committing. Paul's past and these false teachers which were prevalent in this time, in this church, influencing this church. Paul's writing this letter to Timothy telling him how to handle these guys. These false teachers, he does not want to lighten the blow of the sins which these false teachers are guilty of committing. Paul's past, his murderous past, his blasphemous past and these false teachers' heretical teachings were both sin, make no mistake about it, but they were not to be treated the same. The sins of the false teachers was not out of ignorance, but Paul is making a claim. It is out of willful disobedience. In other words, they know what they're saying is not in accord with God's word, that it's, 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 it's coming across and landing on the ears of the culture nice and soft and sweet. And though it disagrees with God's word, they love the crowd. They love the applause. They love the attention. And Paul's saying, listen, my sin, their sin, both sin, both damnable, but, but they're, not to be cre- they're not to be thought of the same. Mine was ignorant. These guys are willfully disobeying God. They know what God has said, but yet they have turned their hearts away to their own will and accumulated for themselves, is what the scriptures say, teachers. These people have accumulated for themselves teachers because they had scratching, itching ears. So here's the point. These false teachers, Paul does not want these false teachers to be comforted by the promise of the, of the gospel, but he wants them to be warned by the wrath of God, the coming wrath of God. Paul genuinely thought that he was serving God by killing Christians. And this is exactly what Jesus had promised in John 16, 2. When he said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when, who, when whoever kills you thinks that he is offering service to God. It doesn't justify Paul's actions, but, it's, but it sheds light on his motives. And then in verse 14, we see Paul's heart overflowing with the overflow of God's grace in the gospel. And that overflow which he refers to in verse 14, causes him to be overwhelmed, as we'll see in our next point. Our second point, overwhelmed. Friends, if you find yourself in a season of drought, sprint back to the cross. Sprint back to the gospel. Sprint back to Calvary and set yourself underneath the waterfall of God's 
grace towards you in Christ. Friends, isn't that what Paul is doing right here in verse 15? He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. At this point, you can almost see Paul's heart beating through the pages of Scripture. The saying, verse 15, that is the gospel is true, he says, and it should be accepted. Friends, what better news could be proclaimed this morning to a lost, to a dying, to a decaying, to a despairing world? What better news could be proclaimed this morning that our Lord has came, has come into the world to save those who cannot save themselves. Paul says again in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This simple gospel message in verse 15 is so profound that all of eternity will be about unpacking its inexhaustible depth. Jesus did not come primarily to give us an example of what to do. Jesus did not come with condemnation and judgment though that's exactly what we deserve. Jesus did not come and choose the most lovely and adorned for which none of us would have made the list. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the greatest and most humbling news you will hear today. What does that say of us? If he saved us, Christ came to save sinners. And he accomplished such a great salvation by his substitutionary death on the cross, by taking our place, by dying the death that we deserve to die as a result of our sin. That's why the cross is everything to the Christian. Friends, is the cross everything to you? And beloved, we don't ever move on. We don't ever move on from the cross. We don't ever graduate from our attempting to graft a better glimpse of the cross. We don't ever graduate from the cross. This is where we stop. This is where we camp out. Right here under the blazing glory of the cross of Christ. Listen to this. J.I. Packer says, To know that from eternity that my maker, foreseeing my sin... For loved me and resolved 
to save me. Though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my savior. And that in love he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me. And will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life, giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and to never let me go. This knowledge... This is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and praise. J.I. Packer was agreeing with Paul as he observed his passion for Christ for his whole life. Both Packer and Paul never moved on. But as the apostle reminds us in verse 15, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul never forgot who he was. Friend, have you forgotten who you were? And listen, if you are someone who says, I don't even know who I was before Christ, here's what you can do. You can imagine what you'd become. If God hadn't given you grace in Christ, if God hadn't showered you with grace, converted your heart, saved you, regenerated you, given you affections for him at a young age, you can imagine all that he spared you from. And gratitude should be bubbling up from the wellspring of your heart. Passion is not just for those who were prison-bound, but also for those who were Princeton-bound, the tight, straight-laced. Those who don't have the background in prison or passion for the gospel what we're all called to have. And then in verse, verse 16, we see the purpose of salvation. Paul says this, our salvation is designed to display something about God. Namely, as he says here, his perfect patience to those who were to believe. When God saves us, he displays his grace in the gospel through us to a watching world. Friends, a changed life is a glorious testimony of the gospel. And through our conversion, he's displaying his glorious grace, his glorious patience, his glorious power in the gospel. Are you aware that God desires to display his grace through your saved life? Now, when I think of display, my mind thinks of my mom and dad had a, a trophy business when I was growing up. 
in Bryant. And I think of that business loaded with trophies. Ben's laughing at me, but Bryant, everyone in Bryant gets trophies because we're the best at sports. We're the best in the state. We're the best in the state. You have to have your own trophy shops in a small town when you're the best athletes in the state. Spelling bees, athletes, everything. I'm just the exception. I didn't make the cut, but I was a loud cheer. When I think of display, I think of those trophies. I think of trophy cases and I think of trophies in a case that don't get dusted very often, that are collecting dust, that are there just to, oh, that's nice. Look at what you did when you were fifth grade. You haven't done anything since then, but congratulations. When you were in fifth grade, you got a game ball, Matt. That's great. You got a few game balls, but where are they at from fifth grade to now? I didn't get any more. Oh, you peaked. You peaked at fifth grade. Well, great job. Well, I think sometimes we do that with the gospel. We do that with our salvation as we think, oh, yeah, mine's a display. And we sort of set it up on the shelf, and then we try to move on to deeper spiritual things. And we try to move on, graduate to other things, and then we sort of leave the cross. We leave our salvation back here. We were first converted. We were shiny trophies of God's grace, perhaps. But then over time, if we're not actively working out our salvation like Scripture calls us to do with fear and trembling, it begins to collect dust. We forget who we were before God saved us. But Paul was a man who never allowed the gospel to become old hat. And as a result, it leads him in this section into the only word I know to describe this, verse 17, is an explosion of emotions. It's almost like, it's almost like, and we'll find out in eternity, but he's writing, he's writing, he's writing, or he's dictating. I don't know what he's doing, but he's saying, but I receive mercy. He's, he's, he's remembering the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Verse 15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy. So he goes through this list, this resume of, man, I was worthless. I was a blasphemer. I was an opponent. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy. And then he gets to verse 17, and he gives this explosion of emotions. Listen. He gives a benediction in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Benedictions are usually at the end of the books of the Bible, but Paul cannot contain his excitement in this moment, and he burst out to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The scribe's like, oh, that was the shortest letter. You even, you beat you. What? You beat you? That was amazing. I'm not done. I just was really excited. Sit back down. <laughs> Friends, if we are ever to have a verse 17 life, we must first have a verse 15 life. As we faithfully and consistently revel in the gospel, we will become overwhelmed by the gospel like Paul in verse 17. Oh, 
my heart, my hope, is that we may be a people who are more aware of what God has already done for us in the gospel than what he has not done for us in any other way in our life. If you are someone here today who is more aware of what God has not done for you, then I want to invite you back to the cross where we see with fresh eyes that God has already done everything for us in the cross. Everything for us in the cross. John Stott says this. This is our instruction for reigniting our passion for the gospel in the present. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love... I love when John Stott agrees with me. I don't agree with John Stott. John Stott agrees with me. The flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. Sometimes we venture so far from the cross, from what he did for us at the cross, that the warmth of the cross is far. And the invitation this morning is sprint back to the cross, which means to repent, to turn. Say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I got away from the cross. I'm so sorry. I'm going to sprint back to the cross. I want the blazing fire of your love displayed at the cross. I want its sparks to fall on me and to ignite my heart in passion. So friends, that's the invitation for us this morning. Will you respond? As we sing in just a moment, as we finish the service, that's the time. That's the time to, to draw near by faith. You're like, look, I don't see a cross. No, it's by faith. By faith. You, you, you think on what Christ has done for you on the cross. You think of who you were. You think of who you are. Christ died for you on the cross, and you... you by faith, you believe that he did that for you, which means you're getting near to the cross. And as you think on the cross, it will spill down into your, your heart, and your heart will affect your affections. So friends, let's draw near yet again to the cross of Christ, where our past is remembered and our passion is ignited for the gospel in the present. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sending and sacrificing your son in my place and for my sins. Thank you that this... Oh, how blissful is this thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Lord, thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray that you would please give us that grace this morning to respond in faith, to see the cross, and for the blazing glory of the cross, for some of that fire in the cross, that it would fall into our hearts and ignite our passion for you in the present.
We love you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.